0: Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. What's up, my dude?
1: Uh, I'm just chilling, you know, recording some podcasts and other tomfoolery.
0: Yeah? Uh, actually, you're going to have to pay me to S- say that. Some I shenanigans. Have, I've copyrighted that phrase. You know, I didn't spell it with an H. Get out of here. I, I own Tom and Thomas. Actually, um, in the car the other day, Anna and I were talking about uh, all, like, the famous Thomases. And they're all either dead or a train. Like, think about it. Okay, so one of them is a train, right? there yeah. are, there aren't more. <laughs> no, I was, I was confused. So I was, I was like, all right, there's Tom Hardy, Tom Cruise, Tom Hiddleston, Thomas, the tank engine.
1: Oh, wait, so you're That's, saying you're saying they are all literally named Tom and not Thomas, or they just yeah. call themselves?
0: What Tom. I'm, what? Oh, I don't know if they're literally named Tom or Thomas. I would imagine that most of them are named Thomas. But it seems that all the famous people who either could be Thomas or Tom go by Tom. And when you Google Thomas, Thomas the Tank Engine is the first thing that comes up. Okay. So I just found that kind of interesting. And like if Thomas the Tank Engine ever goes out of relevance, it it may be the case that if if you Google Thomas, I'll come up first. Maybe. 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 I just found it weird that like every famous actor and famous person name okay Thomas Piketty is that who's that that's an author I can't you, remember you can't just name a name and then say who's that I no. don't know I didn't say the name I oh okay never mind I think Thomas Piketty wrote a book called Capital which is a huge economics textbook so he's a famous economist though probably not big on Instagram uh yeah I think it's just I, I that know. that well, train
1: big ones you know
0: and I don't know I like how Thomas the Tank Engine is very close to Thomas the Frank Engine and Thomas I, the I very Tank Engine's much your biggest competition. I know, right? He's my biggest that's, competition. That's incredible. If but Thomas also, the Tank Engine ever starts a study tips YouTube channel,
1: I'm out of business. It's a tough challenge. Yeah. He's got quite the <laughs> fan base. They're fairly loyal.
0: <laughs> it's true. They're also fairly three. Yes.
1: <laughs> that means they're fairly loyal, though. They don't they don't need study tips. That's true. They don't need that for like ten years. Get out of here. Yeah.
0: Plus kids like to watch the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other day, Anna was like expressing a little bit of regret. She was like, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of feel bad that I came over to my dad's house every weekend and made him watch the same four episodes of SpongeBob every weekend. Yeah. I mean, I I did it too. I don't. Yeah. That's what kids do it's though. It's
1: just a, uh, you know, it's just like, that's a kid thing. I'm sure there's a reason. My mom It's probably did because daycare. they're too dumb to get the story.
0: And so they have to see it 50 times to get each piece. I think that's why. I think it's just like, you like what you like you know i find a song i listen to it over and over again maybe i have like i don't know a kid's brain in some ways but i, I do know, know that my mom ran a daycare when we were younger and shark boy and lava girl was on way too many times for my liking uh so i'm glad that a daycare is no longer run in my house for other reasons than that but also for that reason yeah, yeah that that's the main <laughs> one anywho uh do we have any like news items um, everyone's a news broadcaster these days. You got H3 news, you got Pew news, uh, we got to have CIG news? news.
1: I don't know. What kind of news?
0: Oh, here's, here's a news item. What uh, do we got? I just put drink. out a new video. You did put out a new video today and because I woke up at 5:30 like to hot. finish editing, yeah, it's about boiling. It definitely feels way too hot before yeah, it gets to I wouldn't would drink not doing that it. yet. Um I got up at 5:30 this morning, so the like cheerful demeanor that I'm currently exhibiting is a little bit of a facade, because oh, I'm, no. <laughs> I'm a bit exhausted from this video. It's all a it's lie. It's a bit of a lie. Yeah, I've actually been horribly lethargic the whole time. No, I, I do feel a little bit lethar- lethargic today, but the show must go on, and I'm actually pretty proud of this video. Um, if anybody's curious, it's how to think like Sherlock Holmes, who is one of my favorite characters of all time. Uh, until season three and four, Sherlock was my favorite TV show, bar none. And then season three and four kind of ruined it for me. So I don't even know if I can consider it in my favorites anymore. Yeah. But
1: Sherlock is also two of my favorite superheroes now. He's also two
0: of your favorite superheroes. Yes. And I honestly, I honestly love the Sherlock Holmes movies. The ones with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And the ones with Basil Rothbone that I saw when I was a kid. I don't know those. I don't remember much of those, but I do remember enjoying them, even though they were old. I and, remember black the one and white the
1: like, mouse who was Sherlock.
0: Yeah, great mouse detective. Yeah, it was good. Do you know that they actually scary, used though. audio from Basil Rothbone, the guy who played Sherlock Holmes famously for many years in like the 40s and 50s and 60s? Um, there's voice lines from him in the movie, even though he died like a decade before it came out. I think they just... I don't know if he had recorded it and the movie got delayed or if maybe they were able to take Did, voice lines from... Does the character from... not
1: have a lot of lines or do they occasionally sound different? I don't know. That's it. All I know is I was, I I was looking at Basil Rathbone's
0: um, Wikipedia page today just out of curiosity because I was making the video and I looked at his filmography and the very last one is Great Mouse Detective, but it said like 1986 and it's, I think he died in the 70s or something like that. Hmm. So it was posthumously released audio. But yeah, other than that, there's a video out. And this episode is coming live on a Monday. So it will have been out for four days by the time people are listening to this. Yes, Meaning it's old news. Why would you want to watch it? Oh no. Um, Throw it away. And there will also be another video coming out the day after this episode goes live. So we get all kinds of videos coming out. And the reason for that is I am finally going to take a vacation. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I was waiting for that. You know, you're working. Don't, don't even kid yourself. Okay. The reason that there's any work in this vacation, we're going to San Diego and for six out of the seven days, we're going to lay on a beach, surf, read books, do all the mental health things that are required. Um, but I have been planning to go out and do videos with Pat Flynn for a while and he lives in San Diego. So I couldn't just like go out there and not do it. I didn't want to take two flights out there, so I will take one day,
1: but it'll be fun. It's separated though. Like there's, is it, is it first? Do you work first and then No, it's kind of in the middle. Oh, okay.
0: It's, we get there Saturday, we're going to have Sunday and Monday to do whatever we want. Tuesday's the day we're doing it. And then we have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So it's like, I actually think it's a good thing. And my reason for thinking this is the last time I went to San Diego, it was another just get out of town reset my brain kind of trip. And I booked a week long trip for the first three or four days. It was great. I read books, finished the whole wind up girl, um, started one of the demon cycle books, which is amazing. And it was great. I laid in a hammock. I stayed in a hostel. And then three days in, I started getting antsy. And I found myself at a coffee shop doing emails and working on blog posts and spent the rest of that vacation doing that. So I think that I've learned three days of reset is perfect for me. And my theory is that having a work day in the middle is actually going to be better than having it at the beginning or end. Maybe I think that's if it was the at the end, I would, I would be anticipating it. And if it was at the beginning, that would oh, yeah, probably be want, better. I wouldn't want it at the end. Yeah. I think at the beginning it would be better than end, but I, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. All I know is that I'm excited to have some relaxation time to turn my brain off a little bit. Uh, We'll see if I actually do turn my brain off and I need to get a lot of work done in the next week to uh, enable that. (laughs) And then other cool things are happening. Uh, But unless you have cool things in your life to talk about, I don't know. Today we are tackling how to give a killer speech. Oh, and that reminds me so Ashley showed me the thumbnail draft. Yes. And I don't know if she relayed this to you, but I really hope that you catch the reference that I think actually mistakenly put into the thumbnail. Yes. Okay, good. Because <laughs> uh, there's a killer Mike in the thumbnail. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Well, you didn't? I, yeah. didn't? I didn't think about that at all. I think she told you to put like a,
1: or she said you told her to put a vampire Mike or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was that. just like vampire teeth. I didn't think of
0: killer Mike. The only reason I thought of Killer Mike is because my friend Andrew was in town and uh, he was telling me how Killer Mike actually followed him on Twitter. Oh. Because apparently Killer Mike is curious about getting into the podcasting game. And Andrew was like, I could probably help you out, bro. All right. Which, I mean, that would be pretty cool, Killer Mike podcast. Uh, anywho let's get to the topic of today, which is giving a killer speech. So I'm not sure what all you wrote down on this. I'm not sure um, either. Let me open up my handy dandy notebook
1: and I'll find out what I wrote down on this.
0: Yeah. I'm going to just kind of go off of my own experiences uh, because I'm a pretty good speecher if I do say so myself. And uh, I think that is largely a product of just doing it a lot. But I've also learned some tricks of the trade, ways to you know, structure my talks so that they're more entertaining, ways to get over the nerves going on stage, ways to make sure that people actually stay engaged the whole time, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's what I want to cover. Um, but what did you bring into this this brouhaha of uh, well, ours? The
1: um, the first thing that I wrote down here, it's the first thing I thought of was that an important part of this is embracing, to a degree, anxiety. Mm. And that that's something that helps me with tons of other things that aren't giving speeches but in general like your goal is not to be able to give speeches without being nervous that right. would be nice that that would be great if it could happen but that's not the goal the goal is to be used to being nervous and just giving the speech anyway yeah because who was that who is that guy you were saying who was who constantly performed but threw up before they mm. before they went on every time yeah. forever they never got used to it they just kept doing it because that's that's what you do sometimes you can't make anxiety go away. And if you just learn to live with it for a few seconds. I think that was Peter Fonda. Yeah. I couldn't remember the name, and although yeah, that it, sounds reasonable. I
0: think it was Peter Fonda. And if you look him up, he's um, incredibly well-respected. I don't know if he's still alive, but he was an incredibly well-respected actor, both on screen and in, uh I want to say Broadway, but it's not Broadway. It's just play acting. Is that the yeah. word for it? Uh, on the stage. Uh, but yeah, he would throw up before going on stage, even in his 70s after this huge, long, illustrious career. Yeah, he was still successful, though. Nobody was like, <laughs> you're still nervous, loser. Mm-hmm. Go home. He he was still good. Yep. And I mean, you you get to witness this every time we film a video. I screw up every single line of every video, probably 10 times. I like to think you're remixing your sentences. Oh, yeah. It's
1: the screwed and chopped version of yeah. the video. Every video. I get to see.
0: Every final video is like 10 times chopped and screwed from the original. Mike Jones. Yeah, it's like Mike Jones meets Skrillex meets uh, Girl Talk yeah. all mixed together. And that's what you get. And yep. somehow it seems like a coherent message that has been well that's planned. That's it is. But it's actually just totally remixed. But yeah, uh, and I, I think the reason for that is that I care about the end product turning out really nice and good, and I think the more I care about that, and the more I have like a concrete vision going into it that I want to see sort of executed exactly the you know X Y and Z, the more nervous I am, and the harder it is, and the more preparation it requires. Yeah, and I'll tell anybody who is you know wondering how do I ever get over that anxiety? Is it actually possible? to go on stage and not feel fear. If you care about what you're talking about or if you care about your audience, I don't think you're ever gonna have zero anxiety. Yeah. I've been doing, well, I've been doing College Info Geek for eight years. I've been doing podcasting and video for about five and I'm still nervous every single time. Still nervous every single time I podcast. It's easier, but Yeah, podcasting is is easier at this point. But
1: every time, like when we changed it and we got three cameras, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, cameras are looking at me different now. Yeah, Somehow that makes it different to me. Now I'm nervous again for the first few. But like, you just do it anyway. You don't say, stop, I'm nervous. We'll wait till I'm not. And by Mm -hmm. that, I mean, we'll
0: cancel everything (laughs) forever. And there's another nerve element that uh, has come into the podcast recently. So the three camera setup is about 12 episodes old now. But recently, uh, number one, we got our show on Facebook Watch, and people have started following it there. And we also are now taking little clips and putting them on YouTube, putting them on Instagram. Yep. So I have to now work to not think too hard about like, oh, is this thing I'm going to say now going to be a clip? Oh, is this is this a quotable sentence? Let yeah. me, let me and make that, it quotable. That's a legitimate worry because... I'm always thinking ahead to the end product. And that's, it's really tough. I kind of wish I could just not know all that stuff was gonna happen, but I don't know. I think I would have to be some like person locked in a building that has no internet access. It would be like a Truman Show kind of thing at that point. Yeah. And I think the downsides kind of outweigh the upside in that case. I don't wanna be cut off from the world and have my entire life be a lie. No, I think you can just (laughs) accidentally say quotable things every now and again. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, But on the note of at least calming the nerves, um, number one, the biggest thing that helps me is practice. And not just any practice, but practice that either puts me in a situation that makes me nervous somehow, or that puts me in a situation that is close to what I'm going to experience on the day of the speech. So in college, I took speech classes and the best way that I got practice was to go to the classroom where I was gonna give the speech at night where basically the entire campus is dead and all the classroom the, doors are unlocked, and it was just it was just open. Everything was open. I don't know if people listening to this are going to have that opportunity, but if you do, go to the classroom where you're going to give the speech. If you don't, go to any old classroom that's a, like, roughly the size of your classroom. And if you can't do that, you know, use your room in a pinch. But I found it very helpful to go to the classroom and then I don't know, just like it was a context-based learning kind of thing. Yeah. And there's research out there to show that people who learn something in a specific context are able to better recall it or better uh, perform it in that context. In fact, there was this whole really old story, and I can't remember where it comes from, but it's a story about a guy who took dance lessons, and he took it in this room where there was like this big trunk, like a storage trunk on the floor. And so he took these dance lessons week after week in this room, and... Later, he went and tried to dance at a ball, but that trunk wasn't there. So he kind of, like, lost all of his skill. Uh, so the story goes that he was only able to dance really, really well in that room where the trunk was present. Now, personally, I think that is somewhat apocryphal, and I don't think that necessarily yeah. having a specific trunk with all its nice, like, brass, I don't know, ornate it seems, I mean, maybe it's handles magic and stuff. Trunk, I don't know. It could be a magic trunk. It does seem a little, a yeah. little more than the average effect that you might expect. Right. But I th- I do think that there is some effect that your environment has on you, and if you have practice in a specific environment, you're going to perform better in that spe- specific environment. And there's, like, the whole home court advantage thing in sports. And there is research to show that people who have, like, learned lists of words while scuba diving underwater had better recall when they scuba dived again, and then people who learned on land had better recall when they were on land. Hmm. I think for the land people, it, like, getting a diving suit on and being underwater and then being told to recall words. Yeah, that that's <laughs> probably distracting. Yeah, but I do find it fascinating that the divers had better recall when they dove again. That was really interesting to me. So bottom line, if you have access to a place where you're going to give a speech or some place that is uh, similar, go there and then bring a camera with you. So this is great for two reasons. It puts you on the spot a little bit, because you know you're recording something. Now it's recording for your own consumption. You're probably not gonna be putting it on the internet, but it is still the camera. And it also gives you a recording that you can go look at. So that way you can see, oh, I keep my hands in my pockets when I give my speech, or I'm pacing around a lot more than I thought I was. Or I keep looking back at the uh, overhead screen at my slides, and I should be making eye contact. Or a really common one that I see, is uh somebody picks like one spot to make eye contact with and that's the only spot they ever look at or the only person they ever look at during the entire speech. So you kind of have to practice looking around at everyone uh in you know, like a natural way, not like Yeah. uh not like an oscillating mm-hmm. fan <laughs> unless you're actually like an oscillating fan. <laughs> All right, anybody would like out that. there, yeah, anybody out there who's like in an interpretive art class, please give your speech on that <laughs> life as an oscillating fan. <laughs> yeah. You're just like making bubbling noises through your lips while turning your head. Uh, but yeah, I think you need to practice a little bit of natural head movement there. And a good way to practice it is to look just above the heads of everyone in the audience. That way you don't actually have to make eye contact. Yeah.
1: Otherwise, you might accidentally fall in love and that's going to be distracting.
0: Yeah. If you fall in love on stage,
1: how are you going to think about your thesis statement? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, filming is a great idea because mm-hmm. you just don't know the things you do. One of the things that I did, and I do this normally, like it's just a thing that I comfortably do, but I ended up doing it during some speeches in college without noticing, mm-hmm. and that's like standing on one foot doing like a half yoga tree pose. I like did that you through did a in, whole speech. And, and, in the actual speech? And I didn't know. Really? I had no idea because I just stand like that a lot. And while during, during a speech, I should at least be aware of myself enough to be like, let's not do half yoga poses for no reason. (laughs) But then afterward, the like student teacher was like, yeah, you were doing that. And I was like, oh.
0: (laughs) And you you didn't even know. She did
1: think I had good balance though.
0: Well, you are pretty good at standing on treatment. That was,
1: you know, that was pretty good. I used to be quite
0: jealous of your ability to do that.
1: I I am a very balanced man, but I literally didn't know until she had mentioned something. So like the whole speech completely distracted.
0: So was that recorded
1: too, or was it just, it just she just told, told me? Okay. That was just an actual in class thing.
0: Yeah. I know uh, some feedback I got from my speech teachers in early college was that I would like fidget a lot with my hands. Like, either mm, yeah. Like,
1: hands are a great place for anxiety to show itself. Yes. Yeah. It's, all and the it's time. very
0: distracting to the audience when they see it, but you don't know it's happening because all you can think about is how scared you are and try not to forget your lines and everything like that. Yeah. Which, uh, on that note, what do you do to not forget what you're going to say in a speech? To not forget what
1: I'm going to say? Well, to be honest, I tend to make a lot of the speeches, other than a few where I had to prepare the whole thing, Mm -hmm. they were very sparsely prepared.
0: (laughs) So the way to not forget is to make it Um, all up off the top of your head moment you walk in. This is like, okay,
1: so this, I didn't completely freestyle... All of
0: them. Okay. (laughs) Only 99% of them.
1: But um, something that I intentionally did that led to more improvisation was not overloading um, index cards or straight up not using them. Because the first several times I tried to use those, like I would put all these little bullet points and it would look all good. But then I want to speak conversationally, kind of like in this podcast right here. So what would happen is I would accidentally – be like, oh, and here's a natural point where I skip to this sentence down here, and then I'd be like, uh-oh, I just skipped a really important idea, and it's, <laughs> it's it goes above. Now what do I do? Because that yep. transition that I wrote down doesn't work anymore. And if I just ignore that, I can find a way to naturally bring it back back mm-hmm. up again. But when I wrote down too much stuff and I over prepared, I would stress out that I wasn't doing what I prepared perfectly. Yeah. Whereas if I just prepared, it's kind of like the same way that I studied for tests, which was. I didn't try to, like, memorize everything in the world or or stay up the last night cramming everything and, and be ultra-prepared. I tried to more or less have the knowledge just in my head mm-hmm. because I shouldn't have to cram, theoretically. If I know what the test is, if right. I know the subject, I should just be able to go there. So I review to learn it. Mm-hmm. So with a speech, I prepare by wanting the whole like concept, the arguments I'm trying to make, the information I'm trying to talk about, I yeah. should be very comfortable and very familiar with it. It shouldn't just be, oh yeah, I completely forgot half of the point of this topic. Let me check my cards. Right. Because then, like, well, one, I'm not gonna be able to give that very effectively if I'm that emotionally removed from it that I have no idea what, what it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I guess I wanna share my experience with this. With public speaking, I feel like there are two levels of practice. There's the top level, which is your level of comfort with simply speaking to other people in a pressure-laden situation. So whether it be you being on stage, you being at the front of a room, you being in front of a camera on a YouTube video, or even you being on uh, a podcast behind a mic, that just takes a lot of practice. And over the years, the more you do, the better you get. Yeah. So if you decide to start a YouTube channel today, you're probably gonna be super awkward in front of that camera. And three years later, you're going to be able to be very eloquent, but it's only because you did a ton. Same with speeches. Um, And on that note, YouTube, podcast, speech, it all transfers. So if you do a podcast, you're going to get better at public speaking. You may not get better at the body language and the eye contact, but you will get better with your rate of speech, your diction, your pronunciation, uh, and your confidence in speaking. I think the only reason that I am a decent public speaker is because I started the College Info Geek podcast. So that's level one. Then there's level two, which is the specific material that you are delivering, and that I found through five years of professional speaking experience, uh, there is, I suppose, a little bit of global improvement that you get from practice and your ability to deliver specific material uh, better, but really the determining factor in how well you're gonna be able to do it without much practice is how planned out is it? So, and you know this when we film videos, when we are like, we don't have any time, we gotta write a quick video this week. All right, it's a list of things that are just at the top of my head, they're useful, but it's just total personal experience. Like the eight things you should stop doing when you wake up in the morning. We didn't do a whole lot of research for that video, I didn't have to dig into a bunch of old philosophical texts. It was, yeah. stop looking at your phone when you wake up. You know, stop, uh, I don't even remember what else we did. I don't know. Stop hitting the snooze button. You're, you're like things that I have told myself a million times. So I kind of just was able to stand in front of the camera and speak from my mind. And I don't know, we were done in what, 25 minutes with that video? Much faster than normal. <laughs> yes. Uh, whereas, let's see, what's a really good example? The video I did on... um Essays. That was really well researched. I took a long time, or even better, when the hydration one, the oh, hydration yeah. video, that one took, took probably 15 full hours of research, reading studies, cross referencing, making sure that I was using the most journalistically, um, you know, rigorous resources that I could find, and I came up with a fully written script for that video. So this is the spectrum. We have. The you know eight things video, totally off the top of my head, maybe a little bit of a bullet list to organize my thoughts. Hydration video, completely scripted out. With the hydration video, I tried to film it. I filmed for a straight hour, getting through about a third of the script. And at that point, I started saying lines and I was unable to say them correctly. I would just flub them entirely. And it's really weird to think about because right now I can tell that I'm speaking pretty eloquently. I can tell that I'm speaking at a nice like, slow pace that's understandable. But when I get in front of that camera and I'm trying to deliver pre-written material that's very detailed and very meticulous, sometimes I cannot do it. And I'll get frustrated with myself. I'll think like, you are a professional communicator. You do this on the podcast every single week. Why can't you say these lines the same way you say them on the podcast? And it's because the more prepared it is, there's, it's like a different part of your brain came up with it. Yeah, I think, and actually, this reminds me of something you told me about once, where uh, there was a study where they they scanned the brains of freestyle rappers while rapping. Oh yeah, and there were different parts of the brain that lit up on the yeah, MRI as, as
1: opposed to if they were
0: regularly rapping. Yeah, if they were rapping prepared material that they had written in you know in the past, a different part of the brain lights up than if they were totally improving and doing freestyle. So I think there is like this creative region of the brain that gets that gets involved like in a conversation like this. And it just is totally shut down when you're trying to basically parrot something you wrote down. Yeah. So in those cases, you have to practice that material a ton. And when I go and do prepared talks that are being paid for, I practice a ton because otherwise they're not going to go very well. Though one other thing I will mention is the pressure of being in the room, giving the speech on the actual day makes me a better speaker. That makes sense which is really interesting. Well, it could do one of two things. It could
1: make you a better speaker or it could push you over the edge and make it terrible. Yeah.
0: If I I was so unprepared, I'm going to get to a point where I'm
1: like, but if you're prepared enough, it should be that just that little push. Yeah. That anxiety can give you that Mm -hmm. makes you perform better, that fight or flight. Well, it's why I still
0: practice because there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, Tom, you can just use the pressure, feed off the pressure of the audience, man, just wing it. But I have this nightmare that like, a school or a company has paid me thousands of dollars to speak in front of an audience. And then I'm just like, you know, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. That would be awful. So
1: here's the thing. I kind of just was going to walk up here and m- yeah. make it up. <laughs> it's... No, I got to Pe- take it please seriously. Please still pay me.
0: Mm-hmm. I got to take it seriously. But um, the speech I did last, which was at Menfluential, that I think was my best one I've ever done the audience loved it. And there were actually some parts of that that were ad-libbed. So it wasn't that I needed to come up with 100% planned material. I just needed to have a well-organized, well-thought-out outline, know the points I was going to hit, know the broad strokes of the stories I was going to tell to back up those points, and then go deliver it after practicing it a few times. Okay. But that's an important point, though, is that it wasn't so rigidly prepared. Yeah
1: that you couldn't improv a few things that made sense to where you were yes. or maybe something that had happened that day or something you just thought of that's more relevant. You, you could insert it on the mm-hmm. fly without messing everything up and being like, uh-oh, I was on page 36, subsection C. I'm confused, guys.
0: <laughs> oh, no, it was subsection D. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and in that speech, I remember actually changing some things on the fly or I saw somebody in the audience and I knew that person right there, the work they've been doing over the past couple of years is actually a very good example of what I wanna do. And while I'm thinking about it, I wanna talk about humor. So I think humor is one of the toughest things to get right in a public speech. And this is another thing that you know, whenever I try to deliver jokes that I've written to the camera for our videos, I usually screw them up more than anything else. Well, the tone is really important. If yes. you don't deliver it right, that joke doesn't matter, even if it's hilarious. Exactly. And a lot of people, they want to be funny or they think they're funny, but they don't practice their jokes enough. And the delivery is just totally wrong when they do them in front of an audience. And you can go listen to Jerry Seinfeld tell stories about how he got good at comedy. And it was spend 10 years just refining your material, playing comedy clubs in basements and cellars, and just getting good over the years until eventually you know, one, what material works, and two, how to deliver it correctly. And you're so used to embarrassing yourself
1: all the time, flopping the first time you tell a joke that you don't care and you take it constructively.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So a couple of insights I've gleaned over over telling jokes, and I'm definitely not a comedian and I'm not great at telling jokes. So maybe go listen to Jerry Seinfeld or somebody else. Um, in fact, there is a book out there and the title of the book is escaping me right now, but I will have it in the show notes because I, I can find it afterwards. It goes over the six types of comedy. So you can basically break all humor and all comedy down into six categories. And I can't remember exactly what the six are, but they include things like surprise, um, self-deprecation, or I think um, hostility. So it could be hostility to yourself or hostility to somebody else. Surprise is one. There are four others. Hmm. So you can look at that. And if you take any joke, it breaks down into one or more of those categories, no matter what the joke is. Uh so that's useful and I think it would be good to go look at that if you're gonna try to write jokes for your next speech. It'd be interesting just to analyze what kind of what kind of humor do I normally Yeah do? What are what are my normal jokes? Let's categorize myself. Well I remember reading it and I was like, does Tim and Eric fit into this? And it does. Like Tim and Eric and Eric Andre kind of humor is really weird. It's like I don't know, um, deep fried memes is really weird. It's like layers upon layers of irony and stuff like that, but it still does fit the end of the day into one or more of those categories. Okay. Uh, Two things I've learned. Number one, you need to practice your jokes a lot more than you need to practice everything else so you can confidently deliver them. Because I found that your confidence will falter when you try to tell a joke. That's like the weakest point or um, what do you call that? The weakest link in the chain. (laughs) It's also the worst time to mess it up. Yes, because it's the most awkward. If you mess up a statistic or something, people will kind of give you the benefit of the doubt. but. If you try to tell a joke, I find that a bad joke is one of the hardest things to be empathetic about. I think, actually, I'm coming up with this on the fly, but empathy and secondhand embarrassment are, like, two... They're not opposites, but they're, like, things that cannot exist together. If you're secondhand embarrassed, you just, like, oh, can't, you're just like, I you feel can't. so embarrassed I don't care about you. <laughs> actually, it. May, maybe it is... Maybe it is an opposite thing because maybe secondhand embarrassment and cringe is a manifestation of revulsion like you want to get away from the situation and not be associated with it at all. And empathy means I feel the way you feel. I do associate with what you're mm-hmm. going through right now. I've been in the situation or I could see myself in the situation. So maybe like it is All right, new opposite. new uh, new theory. Yeah. This is the college philosophy geek podcast. We'll test that out. The other thing is I like to play off of the audience. I like to, number one, tell jokes about myself, but number two, I like to use the audience in jokes. Now, you don't wanna use hostility in a way that is mean. I think if you're going to be mean, you should be mean to yourself. Self-deprecation is both funny and harmless usually, Um, but you can use the audience in jokes. So sometimes I will poke fun at people in the audience that I know in a very positive way. Uh, For instance, at the Menfluential Conference, It's run by Aaron Marino. He's got three and a half million subscribers on YouTube. I know he's an incredibly confident guy. Um, So I did a little bit of like an impression of him during my speech and I just totally made it up and everyone laughed really hard at that. But nothing bad was said about him. I was just doing an impression of him. And I think the impression, uh, the point that the impression was around was, I don't have the charisma that Aaron has. See, watch me try to do it. So it was kind of poking Uh, fun of myself. okay. But because it was, I think it's referential humor, that's another thing, like references are something people really like. So I was calling attention to something that other people really already had a lot of familiarity with. Um, But if you're going to use the audience, then you need to be prepared to be flexible. So great example, another joke in that talk was going to uh, involve my friend Charlie from the Charisma on Command channel. And it was written into my speech months in advance because I knew he was gonna be there. And then I get there and he tells me, I actually have to leave the morning of your speech day. And my speech was in the afternoon. So he was gone. So I had to on the fly pick somebody else out and kind of rework my joke. So get to the heart of what your joke's about. What's the actual punchline? And then figure out, like, ask yourself, what would happen if this happened? What would happen if the audience, you know, didn't raise their hands when I asked them this question? How do I move on from that? anytime you're going to have audience participation, you need to have an A and a B and know where to go. So it's almost like a hopscotch game. There could be like a point here, a point here, but it's all going to kind of converge back to the main line.
1: Yeah. You you really don't want to be a deer in the headlights. when you're. Oh, no, no one
0: cares. How many here have played Ultimate Frisbee? Oh, just everyone. Okay. Well, my speech was actually Uh about the rules of it. So I, I guess we're done. Yeah. Thanks everyone.
1: That's Questions? Bad. You should you should plan for it. It should seem like whatever their answer was, you had planned for them to answer that way. Like you had known yes. the whole time. Yeah. Even, you even have if to, you were wrong.
0: Was that thing that was it? Eminem that said it? It was like right first for yourself, then for your fans, then for your critics. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if Eminem said it. He definitely does it. He's a very good example of somebody who you can't really call out because he's kind of called himself out already. Yeah. So I think that's just a great example of when you're writing your material or figuring out what you're going to say, read through it with the eyes of somebody who's going to maybe disagree with you or isn't on the same page as you and ask yourself, how is this going to go if that kind of person answers in this way instead of the way I expect? Yeah. I think that's the reason why really complicated plans often don't work out very well because People can come up with a plan in their head and they'll think from their perspective, well, if I do this, they're going to do this. Like if I'm playing chess with you and I try to think like 15 moves ahead, I'm really kind of just thinking from the perspective of what I would do in response to my next move. And I have to kind of get into your head and be like, all right, what would Martin do in response to my next move? Beat you. This is probably true. I think you did win our last chess game. I did. I was really mad too. And we'll never play another one. (laughs) I thought I was going to win. I had more pieces on the table than you did.
1: Uh, actually it's called essentialism Tom coincidentally more pieces
0: isn't more important than one good piece I, I guess that's true coincidentally because of the Sherlock video the chess set is totally set up right now on the kitchen table <laughs> we could play that's true I'm, I'm kind of mentally exhausted though wh-
1: what if yeah I, I like how you already built in an excuse there <laughs> that's fair oh I'm you mentally exhausted that. I knew
0: you were gonna say that I anticipated that
1: Tommy doesn't want to play
0: how does it feel to be probably, called Tommy? Okay, now you're expecting me to say, all right, you're on to save my pride. No, I'm not going to play but because I expected then you I can to still be the that. winner. And I bet you expected me to expect that, which is why you had a sarcastic response now. I don't, uh, <laughs> I give up. I can't keep track of this many layers. Let's talk about preparing your speech. So uh, how do you write a good speech? We've talked about how to deliver it, how to practice it. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that completely depends on what, what kind of speech you're going for. Yeah. So I guess that's the first question. What are you trying to deliver to the audience? What is the point of the speech? Are you trying to just share your experience? Are you trying to teach them something? Are you trying to persuade them to change their opinion? Who is your audience? That's a really important thing to think about. Yeah. You know, if I get hired to speak for a school, I want to know, am I speaking to primarily freshmen? Am I speaking to seniors? Because if I'm talking about academics or I'm talking about career prospects, I'm going to tell very different stories to freshmen and seniors. Or I'm going to focus, at least I'm going to focus most of my time at the very least on different things. So I think the first thing is to know your audience. um, Get clear on what you want to say and then make sure that everything that you say either serves the point or serves the goal of keeping people engaged. So how do you keep people engaged? That's why I brought up jokes. I like to use jokes to keep people engaged. Yeah. Or I like to throw really unexpected things into my speech. So I think one time I went to a school and I was talking about how to get an internship. And I I think I said like, the first thing that you need to do is travel back in time and learn how to ride a dinosaur or something like that. And I had like a really stupid Photoshop in there of a dinosaur with lasers on its arms. I don't remember exactly what it was. Okay. But it did not belong in a list of tips on how to get an internship. But I was thinking, I've already been talking for 20 minutes about my career path. There's gonna be some people who are fading away no matter how engaged I have most of the audience. Okay. So I wanted to throw something in there that you can't not notice. Like you're gonna perk up because it looks wrong and it's like a double take kind of thing. Like, wait, what? And then I can kind of take it back. But now I've like re-upped their attention. That makes sense. So I think you can think about like pacing pacing your speech and um, maybe adding little jolts of attention in there. Well, and you got to do this for all your YouTube videos. Yes. So. Actually, yeah. That's why I do skits. And that's why I do lots of stupid so jokes. it's not too dry for too long. Yeah. I mean, even even a topic like how to think like Sherlock Holmes is going to be pretty dry for 12 minutes if I only talk about, here's how to be more observational. Here's how to be more of an expert in your field. And here's how to be more skeptical. Like, it would be boring. Yeah. At least it would be boring if I delivered it. And I think this is this is a point that we need to make here. We are talking about how to give speeches from our perspective and our experience. And I think that there are people out there who have either natural gifts or talents that they've developed over the years to the point where they can deliver a speech without the aid of humor or without the aid of these little jolt things that I like to put into my speeches, and they're still captivating. I'm sure you've like watched a TED Talk that has no jokes None of that crazy stuff. And yet you've watched the entire thing all the way through. That's probably because yeah. either, you know, the story is so good or the information is so yeah. uh, you're, you're uh, expecting, expecting
1: you. to get something really good out of
0: it. And you don't want to miss it. Yeah. Or um, the delivery is just so raw and so human. And like, you just connect with the person. I remember I was watching a TED Talk from Adam Driver, the guy who plays uh, Kylo Ren. And mm. he was talking about how his experience in the military led to him becoming an actor. And then he like had started this organization for people who were in the military to get acting experience as a way Hmm. to deal with like PTSD and stuff like that. No jokes in that, at least not that I can remember. Um, His delivery wasn't even that polished. Like you look at him on that Ted, uh, TED talk stage and you don't think, oh, this is like the most polished practiced speaker I've ever seen. But it was somebody who was talking from the heart in a very raw way. And I think that can be captivating in its own way. Okay. So, you know, if you're sharing something very personal to you, you don't need to be thinking, how do I fill this script with tons of tricks and how do I, you know, read 18 blog posts on how to make my speech better? Just get up there and tell your story. But I think a lot of people are delivering speeches where they're maybe a little bit removed from the material, doing it for a class, doing it yeah. for work, maybe, or getting paid to speak. In those cases, you do want to maybe employ some of the tactics.
1: Yeah, or find a way to twist it so that it is still a story, because people love stories. Mm-hmm. And once you get them invested in that, they'll probably pay attention the whole time. But if you're just talking about, like, the history of peanut butter, I think that was a high school speech I had to give. And I was just like, there's... That's a pretty interesting story. Uh, was George well, Washington Carver in it? I, I don't even remember anything about it, other than on the poster board I had to do with it. I wrote peanut butter with an A. and <laughs> <laughs> and, and peanut butter. In, instead that's all I remember this from just that. reminds me of that's, that's uh, all I got
0: <laughs> this just reminds me of the videos that our friends made yeah <laughs> Clyde yeah I named himself of 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 turtles yeah and then Brandon was peanut butter oh Brandon's coming to Denver by the way yes different Brandon now different brand. oh wait that wasn't a, oh that Brandon was the one who edited the video yes that's why I was thinking of that him. is true but yeah he's coming to Denver I'm pretty stoked about that Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you had a peanut butter speech. Yes. That sounds pretty fun. Uh, I
1: didn't do so well. Well, I did in that class, but high school speech, uh, that's not exactly polished. I'm probably better now if I had to guess.
0: Well, you've been doing this podcast for longer than you probably want to know if I were to tell you the date that you started. Actually, I'm not even sure if I know the date. You've been on it for more than a hundred episodes. I can tell you that
1: that's, I was going to say like a year, but that sounds like two. It's probably two years at this point. Because it's weekly.
0: Well, that's how I felt about Listen Money Matters. I was like, I've been on Listen Money Matters for, I think, two years. Nope. Three. That's weird. And now it's three and a half. But yeah. Pretty solidly three and a half come the end of this month. Cannot say I brought a lot of strategy
1: to the peanut butter speech.
0: Didn't you get kicked out of speech class for some really stupid reason? Like I an got unfair
1: reason? completely kicked out of my very first speech class in high school. It was like uh, whatever, I don't remember what it was called, but you know, like AP or, or some college credit. One of the ones where one it's like, ones. one of the ones that's like higher up and you get college credit for it or something. And so what happened was I had so much anxiety throughout most of that class that I straight up didn't do the first like four or five speeches. And then oh. the teacher said, if you don't do the next one, then you're not going to be in this class. And I was like, okay. I prepare the next one. I am terrified. I, I practice it like a billion times. I go up there. I am. It's like how to juggle. So I'm super like stiff. I perform it robotically and two minutes faster than I had practiced like 10 times previously. And then I'm like... And that's it. And then I sit down, and she thinks that I am, like, just trying to not pay attention or not respect the class oh, or something. She thinks you're, like,
0: being a jerk or something? Yeah,
1: she thought I was just, like, really not caring and then yeah. kicked me out. Now, I think that's pretty unfair because a speech yeah. teacher should be understanding that the every single one of your students is going to be filled with anxiety. I did give the speech. I tried. Yeah. I prepared it so much.
0: And then she kicked me out because of anxiety. That's not right. I mean, if you're a speech teacher and someone hasn't given the speech four times, I think it would be pretty obvious that they're very anxious, especially you're going to see it when they're giving the speech.
1: I think it was fairly apparent. Yeah. Yeah, that was a dumb reason. But now I'm on a podcast, so it looks like you can get better at stuff.
0: But yeah, uh, no thanks to her. Well, I want to dig into that because I had anxiety in speech classes too. I do remember having to deliver a self-written poem in front of the class in uh, sixth grade. And most, as I think most sixth grade boys aren't really into poetry. Darkness envelops my soul. Yeah, that was seventh grade. You know, seventh <laughs> grade, you start <laughs> listening to... Then you've got it to, all over. You got start so listening much to poetry. Dashboard. You start listening to Hawthorne Heights, like poetry's all the rage. You know, you got to get some of the angst out of your system. But sixth grade, you're like, no, poetry's not for me. I want to go play football. And now I got to read it in front of the class. So my hands were shaking and it was not... It was it was not fun. Palms but I were did sweaty. It. Yeah, palms were sweaty, mom spaghetti, and he's nervous on mom spaghetti. Yep. <laughs> but I did it. So, I'm curious how you got from literally not being able to go up and do the speeches four times in a row to now being able to do it. Um, let's see. Well,
1: I had to retake speech class next year and I was going to graduate that year. So, I did better because I kind of had to, you know, the The pressure was on. Yeah. I I needed to take that English class. Okay. And that was it. Um, so I did better in that. And also because I had fewer close friends in there. I Mm. find that for me, I actually perform far better at any sort of, I'm trying to be professional or I'm trying to do something serious, not around my close friends. They bring me no comfort. I think to myself, if I mess up in front of them, they're going to make fun of me for it forever because that's what we do. <laughs> These strangers will not ever see me again. Yeah. So it's easier. So That's a good mental hack. Yeah, it was easier for me the second time because I didn't have friends in there mm-hmm. to to watch me just embarrass myself in front of everyone. And then I had to take the class in university, but I took it a little more proactively then. I was excited to take it then because I was trying to do a blog. I was trying to do all these businessy. I'm going to try to succeed because I'm in university now. Yeah. And at that point, I don't know. I think really the trick was I I did a lot of other activities and met more people that would build more confidence mm. over the years. Just okay. just a base level of confidence. It's not like it just accidentally happened. Right. I pushed myself and got out of my comfort zone and kept expanding it until eventually that wasn't so far outside of it as it was before.
0: So you were building like a fundamental core of self-confidence that not only enabled you to do speeches, but probably a bunch of other things too.
1: Yeah, well, I was a part of several things, like uh, we co-founded an organization that stupidly fought with wooden swords, but we had like 50 people all in the woods at one time, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It was a huge thing. And then I co-founded like an artistic collective with a lot of people. We had like a full concert at this place that was just our artists. Mm -hmm. Completely. Like I I kept putting myself in situations where I had to be around tons of people where there was plenty of initial anxiety. And eventually I had the comfort zone was just close enough to speeches that it wasn't that hard to step outside and do them. It was still Mm -hmm. anxiety inducing. It was still a little scary, but it wasn't completely shut down my life scary.
0: Okay you know what, I think that means we need to define a even higher level than before. So I guess there's three levels to this. Level one, gain general self-confidence. And you do that by doing all the things you just said. Put yourself in situations where you're a little bit anxious and you're forced to grow. Be around lots of people or put on events where you're the leader, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, Step two, get specific speaking experience, whether that be through a podcast or YouTube channel or Toastmasters, which is a great organization that's free and there's thousands of chapters around the world where you can go work on your speeches. Um, and I will tell you about Toastmasters. Everyone in there is very scared and is basically a beginner with speeches. So I remember I went to a meeting once and I was anxious that because it's a, it's a club for people trying to get better at public speaking, everyone in there was going to be an expert and I was going to look stupid. That's kind of what like I've assumed. no. Uh, Everyone in Toastmasters is also a beginner, and most people will be up there with note cards, they'll be shaking hands, like, you will be in good company. You will be in company of people who are at your level, who will understand if you're nervous or you have to read off of note cards or whatever, and you're going to grow. That makes a
1: lot more sense, actually, because otherwise, what, they got a ringer who comes in and just shows up everyone,
0: that that wouldn't be conducive to, like, growth. yeah. I think like there's this implicit assumption. That makes more sense. Whenever you see a group of people or a club or even a person that looks kind of cool or has like the trappings of some official thing about them, like it's a club and Toastmasters has so many international chapters um, or there was this, you know, uh, countless people actually on the internet where I'll follow them on Twitter or I'll see their work on YouTube and think that person is so cool. They would never even give me the time of day or the, the big thing that has been like this little worm in my brain that I've had to work on for years is thinking, I'm not ready to reach out to that person yet. I need to do X, Y, and Z to make myself look cool enough for them to even give me the time of day. Um, it, I think the reason that little brain worm is so persistent is that it's kind of true sometimes. Like there are people who probably would not have given me the time of day five years ago, like say Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I think in most cases, that is just an excuse that is born out of fear. Yeah. And then you go to Toastmasters and you realize, hey, this actually isn't all that bad. And most people here are at my level. Or you say hi to that person and you start casually commenting on their Instagram photos. And then you realize that, oh, hey, you actually have a lot of the same questions I have or a lot of the same anxieties I have. And then you end up talking at VidCon and become best friends. And, you know. Is this real? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> there it is. Uh, yes, it is real. So I have realized that, uh, I, I just need to reach out to people. Uh, it's the whole show up and have something to show. And I was whole very stuck on the have something to show part for a long time. Sometimes you just have to show up. In this case, showing up means reaching out. Yeah. But anyway, Toastmasters is a great option. Um, mock interviews. If you have the ability to do those at school, take a speech class. I don't know why I didn't say speech class first, but... Oh, oh yeah, I guess yeah. I just... Take a speech class. Good point. Uh, if it's not required of you... I Here's here's my um, my view on speech classes. If they're not required, you need to consider them personally required. I think they're like one of the few, unless you're going to go out and do it independently with Toastmasters or something like that, they're like one of the few classes that you really should take if you're in college. If you've got the time to do it, absolutely do it.
1: Yeah, I think it was one of the most important classes I took. I mean, yep. sure, I was anxious before everything, but as soon as it was done and I was like, oh, I did that speech. Mm-hmm. I did it. It felt good in a way that no other homework has, you know, feels good. I'm not i not that attached to my math assignments. I'm not yeah. like, yes, yep. that was a personal challenge. It, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. But the speeches, I mean, that kind of confidence carries over into literally every part of your life. Yeah. There's nothing it will not help.
0: Yeah. It's a good feedback cycle. You're going to build that self-confidence, which makes you a better public speaker, which makes you more confident. Yeah. So it's just like this nice positive feedback loop. Uh, this is kind of off topic, but I'm, I'm curious if you could like build a curriculum of required classes in school, like say high school, what would you have in it?
1: Um, let's see. Okay. So speech is useful. That's, that's, uh, that's an easy one. Yeah. That's why I was thinking about it. Hmm. Um, I guess, I don't know, in high school, I feel like I didn't care about enough in high school that I would have, I was a terrible student in high school, to be mm-hmm. completely honest. I suppose some sort of really useful personal finance thing would be nice, near the end, Yeah, when you start to care more, and not related to stuff that you're not going to do, like, soon, like, immediate things. Bills, buying your first car renting places, not like, oh, you just graduated high school. Here's how to get your 401k and buy yeah. a house next year. Like You're going to be like, that's what am I, 30? That's so old. <laughs> you're going to tune out. It's yeah. not going to matter. So
0: Though one thing that I did appreciate, which happened to me in high school, they didn't talk about 401ks or even how to get a home loan, but they did have a field trip where we went to one of those new housing developments and we got to tour what was probably like a $500,000 house. Just and they were just like, all right, here's what it would take to afford this. And they, I think they just kind of like wanted to show us what hard work could potentially do. And yeah. I don't know, I, that just kind of like made an impression okay. on me. Okay.
1: Well, yeah, that's better than some like printed out papers. Yeah. You know, I, and I guess in addition to those, I would probably put some sort of foreign language or culture class, if mm-hmm. you really don't care about the linguistic aspects, at least. Studying the culture of some place you're not from so that you realize how big the world is. That's a good idea, yeah. And then I don't think foreign language classes
0: often do that.
1: Oh, not in high school. They do. Classroom environments, it's really easy to grade papers, not conversations and not cultural knowledge, Mm -hmm. unless you make it really trite, like, what's a really popular food that they eat on this street? Like, that's that's not useful. What are you going to go to the country and just be like, I know some trivia? Mm -hmm. Yay. But. Yeah, like a a language or culture class because it will help us become more open-minded and that's good. And then some sort of independent study where you have to propose some sort of project or just open-ended learning thing and then then go for it. Yeah, Because there are so many different things we don't get to touch at all, especially in a high school curriculum. Nothing is even gone into. Mm -hmm. But like... I had to learn a lot of random stuff on the side doing the artistic collective business stuff and web development is almost entirely a skill that I built outside of classes after high school. So yeah. like without outside of class time to learn, which not everyone is going to have, especially if they're in sports or if they've got like a more difficult family situation or, or jobs that they need to hold, they don't necessarily have time to learn right. random stuff. So I would want that because at that particular age, adolescence and like you know college, it's you're learning who you are and what yeah. you care about, and you're probably going to stick with eighty percent of that for a long time. So you should have the chance to see more.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I I had a lot of study halls in high school, um, and I purposely gave them myself, but I used them for essentially independent study, uh, and I would. I would sometimes forge library passes for myself. <laughs> so my my school wow Tom's a criminal. I know my school had a limited number of library passes that they would give out every period, um, and for some like it wasn't it wasn't equal to the number of chairs in the library. It wasn't even equal to the number of seats at computers in the library. I think it was just an arbitrary number to keep the library quiet and to keep like to keep from having too many kids in there, because if you have too many kids, they're going to start talking and roughhousing and whatever. And that's my guess as to the reasoning. But uh, in the study hall room, you could only either do homework or read a book or nothing. Um, and we couldn't listen to iPods or anything like that. Like that, I wanted to go on the computer and like do all my research and do all the things I was doing. So sometimes if I didn't sprint to the library fast enough to get one of the you know few library passes they were going to give out, I would just make my own. (laughs) Wow.
1: But I I mean, at least it's a good reason because you should be allowed to learn stuff during that time. Yeah.
0: And like nowadays, every kid has a laptop in school or an iPad or something. So they could do that in the classroom. But when I was in high school, the only place you could access a computer is either a computer lab. And those were not open for just free use ever or the library, which had free use computers. Yeah. And I probably learned more on those computers than I learned in most of my classes in high school. I spent a lot of time just like learning stuff. Uh, but that's like, that. that's kind of how I am. And I know a lot of other students in study halls just squander them, like talking or sneaking an earphone in their ear, just like going to sleep and listening to music. So I think uh, an independent study thing where it was somewhat guided, there was at least like a deliverable and then you yeah. you had independence within those parameters would be great.
1: Yeah, well, it's like a lot of students end up thinking school is almost like, you know, it's just like learning jail. There's no yeah. fun in it. And then yep. they're like, wait, what? I get a, I get a pick? That'd be a way to get them engaged again. Mm-hmm. And I guess the only other thing I can think of outside of that would be like a diet and posture class. Not necessarily working out. You know, gyms already exist. That's easy. But sort of a, here are the things you're going to regret in 20 years. Let's <laughs> fix them now. Yeah. You just have a bunch of people with chronic injuries come in and be like,
0: here's why just like, I have constant back pain. Yes,
1: I wake up in agony every day. <laughs> This is horrible, but
0: actually that might be a good class. But
1: that'd be, like, yeah, that would have been helpful to know. You know, we're, yeah. we're on computers and cell phones all the time. We're all going to ruin our
0: necks and our hands and our backs. Mm-hmm. And well, I just saw somebody on Reddit was like, they posted a $22,000 dental bill. It was like, this is what not going to the dentist for 10 years and also eating a diet full of uh, simple carbs and sugar will get you. Oh no. $20,000. Yeah. Stuff, work stuff and... like more like how to maintain your body. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to do more on that in the future.
1: That's Martin's um, Martin's best school curriculum.
0: I really like Bam. your idea of a cultural immersion class. So I took four years of Spanish and one year of French, and there was a there were you know feeble attempts at cultural immersion, but for the most part it was I know learning, learning your language. Birthday. There you go. But that's not useful. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could actually replicate this in a classroom without literally doing a study abroad. But I remember. I didn't do a study abroad, but I did go to Japan for two weeks after my uh, sophomore year of college, just independently with two friends. And one of the things I remember realizing, and it was really profound, was I had had this whole perception growing up that America was the best place in the world to live. And this is what you're taught growing up in America. It's super patriotic here. And all the authority figures and parents are like... You boy, don't you glad that you live in America. Every, like every place else in the in the entire world is like a communist place or a socialist place or like there's some reason why. Or, they, or like a happy place. <laughs> yeah. Everyone there is happy. Why do they want to be happy? You know, but you know, even, even like the very industrialized and wealthy nations, people in America that have not been to them, they always have something to say about like how it's so much better here. And you know, you would never want to be anywhere else. And then I went to Japan and I met and talked to people who were leading perfectly happy, normal lives. And now I talk to other people who have studied abroad and learned the same thing about people in Ireland and people in England and people in Africa even. And you start to realize like, the human experience is a global one. And it's not like the best one ever is to be had in America. Yeah, There are people who have a horrible experience in America and there are people who have an amazing experience- Uncle Sam's in coming to In many you. other countries, yeah. That doesn't mean that other countries don't have problems, but ours does as well. And I think, traveling really opened my eyes and and made me see things on a more global level and made me see my place as an American citizen as more equal to everyone else's than as like in you know the best country in the world. And honestly like I, I still feel weird about that because I think we're pressured to feel very patriotic in this country, but it it made it hard to feel like I should only care about my nation just because people who lived many many years before me drew some borders around them. Like there was more to it than that, but you know, I don't know. It was very perspective altering. Well, I mean, a lot of people
1: literally don't need to do more than go to a a city in like the state over to get get a new cultural experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't travel to more than maybe four or five different cities all in the Midwest until we moved here. And I've taken two road trips up to like Portland and Seattle and back now. And in Seattle and Portland, I was like, whoa, this is like, especially Seattle over with the, the Puget Sound and like Pike's Place Market with all the fi- the fishmongers. And I was like, this is literally like a different world. This feels yeah. like a world that should have only be in movies, but apparently it's real. It's just over yeah. here and not in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of people just never get. They stay in their same town because travel can be expensive. I, yeah. I can see how that's a problem, but you don't need to go
0: very far to understand... Well, I remember when life when, you, can be different. when you were in college, wasn't there some club you went to that was like foreign language and tea? And I don't remember. And then you went and taught refugees and like, you know, you could have oh, conversations yeah. Yeah, with I taught, taught refugees and
1: yeah. English. And that was really cool. And like world expanding as well. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and you've never been to another country. I have not. So, and I still think that you have gained a lot of that same perspective, maybe not in the same way. Um, and maybe it doesn't feel the same, as I've felt having been in a different country, but I I certainly don't see you as the kind of person who has sort of like still has their eyes closed to that fact.
1: No. So you don't, you don't need to travel because I was already doing things. Teaching the refugees was literally in the city over from my university. Yep, You know, it's not like I needed to go very far, Mm -hmm. just anything that would be good for that.
0: Yeah. So just some kind of cultural immersion. Uh, You kind of nailed my entire curriculum Nice. I think like in the past, I had written like, uh, okay, so I want to sort of change up one that I had written in the past. In the past, I call it like the logic class and the solution finding class. Uh, I would want like some sort mm. of problem solving class that relies heavily on learning to use information systems. Okay, So that makes sense. not as narrow as you got to learn how to code. It's a whole coding class because I don't think everyone has to learn how to code. But I do think everyone should be able to use complex information systems, computer operating systems. They should be able to search on a computer well. They should be able to navigate file trees very well, you know, stuff like that. Cuz that's kind of necessary in our society today. And then this is one I just kind of thought of now, but and I don't know what the logistics would be, but I kind of wish everyone had to spend like a good couple of weeks working in like retail or at a call center or, and something like that. I think like that plus like volunteer service. Volunteer service is great, but I don't think most volunteer service exposes you to people who are jerks. And I think working in retail or a Mm. call center or something like that does expose you to people who are jerks and teaches you number one, how to deal with them when you are in that position of kind of like being the servant, being the employee who can't really say anything, but it also makes you more empathetic in the real world. I think most people are, are as empathetic as they need to be, but there are some people who could be taught what it's like to be in that position and that, no, you are not better just because somebody across the counter is working at McDonald's and you're the one ordering McDonald's. Yeah. You don't deserve to treat somebody with disrespect just because they're like out of cheese or something, you know, I don't know, like something that just teaches people how to be more empathetic. And I think you gain empathy through being in those experiences and, and being humbled somewhat, you know, going through hardship and, you know, not bad hardship, but working at McDonald's. <laughs> the the <laughs> go through like... hardship classes.
1: <laughs> there you go. There yeah. are some, maybe there are some ethical problems with that. It could go, it could go a little well, far. Well,
0: it's not like, it's not like, you know, harmful hardship. But no, yeah. Working I just... retail sucks. Like wor- working at Target, I didn't like it. So I consider like a hardship. You know, you had to like pay your dues and you had to deal with rowdy customers or people who were really rude. And I I find value in that. Just like I found, find value in having walked 20 miles a day through cornfields in 110 degree heat. Like that sucked. 15 miles both ways. 15 miles uphill in snow both ways, even though it was 110 degree heat. Oh no. No, we actually did do 20 mile days though. Like for real. Uh, Like detasseling is three weeks of hell, but you get paid pretty well. We got farm and dad over here. But yeah, yeah, I did do farm work. Farm and dad. Um, We kind of got away from speeches, but... Oh, wait,
1: I'll bring it back. One time I had to give a speech to another French class about a language learning tool okay. in French. And after that, English speaking was so much easier because I knew oh. all the words. okay. Uh so do something extra hard it does i guess i what are some examples where you don't have to do a speech in a foreign language to do that give your speech <laughs> while hopping up and down over and over and then when you give your speech standing still you're going to be like wow i can think a lot clearer give your speech backwards yeah
0: Memorize it entirely and then deliver something, it backwards.
1: Something like that. I don't know. But it did, it did make me feel more comfortable because, once again, I did something even more anxiety inducing yeah. than that because I was like, uh-oh, if I mess this up, not only am I bad at speaking, I'm bad at language, and they might not get what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then English ones were like, oh, well, I, that's not nearly as hard now.
0: Yeah. Well, let's see here. What are some experiences like that that I've gone through? I think giving speeches has made podcasting and YouTube easier. Um, The few times that I have gone out and vlogged in public are actual confidence boosters. For me, holding a camera out in front of my face and taking a picture is very awkward in public. And uh, this may come as a surprise to people who follow me on Instagram and see like many pictures. But every time I take a picture like that, I'm like, there's a rush of anxiety and I want to do it as quickly as possible. Everybody
1: thinks I look dumb. I know, right? They think I'm a millennial.
0: And Uh, I know like there's tons of people out there who love vloggers and Casey Neistat is out there just holding the camera in front of his face all day long and does not care. But there's still like this inherent fear in me of even just holding my phone out. It's not even a giant camera. It's just a phone. Like taking five seconds to take a picture with a phone is weird and, you know, anxiety inducing. But every time I do it, I get better. And there's a little bit less fear. And that also translates back to everything that's easier. Yeah. Like making a podcast in a room where nobody can hear you, except maybe the neighbor. I don't know if she can hear us. I don't know. Maybe she's gaining some hope she likes the she content. Yeah, hopefully like subscribe, comment and follow us on MySpace. Buy by our merch. If, if you do or just listen through the wall, we're going to have merch soon. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead now and say it's collegeinfogeek.com slash store. And if it's not, it will be by the time this goes live. But, uh, yeah, we have a store on standard. We did have a DFTBA store and that's, it's being merged with our standard store, which is pretty cool. Oh, anyway. So to wrap up the speech thing, which, uh, you know, I don't regret going off topic cause this was some good stuff, but to wrap up the speech thing, um, I want to talk about how I outline and plan my speeches. So regardless of what the topic is, First, I wanna get clear on what I want my audience to come away with. How do I want to change my audience? That's the question. Should they walk out happier than they were before? Like that's what a comedian wants. Should they walk out having learned something new about the world? Should they walk out having their beliefs potentially challenged or changed? I wanna get clear on that. After that, I just free write. So, and this is honestly how most videos go as well. I will just write what comes to mind in an Evernote document. Totally stream of consciousness, maybe it's bullet list, maybe it's not, but it's not trying to be regimented and I'm not trying to edit myself. It's much like paper writing. Uh, and really the only difference between writing a paper and writing a speech is number one, I'm trying to figure out where are those breakpoints where I'm going to inject some humor or I'm going to inject a little jolt that's going to bring people's attention back to the fore. Uh, and then it stops at the outline. There's never a fully written script unless it's a video that's going to be scripted in that case, I know I have time to shoot it. But for a speech that's on stage, I never want a script. And I personally do not make note cards. I have the outline. Sometimes I print it. Sometimes I bring it up on my iPad. And because I travel a lot when I I speak, um, I just kind of do it in my hotel room holding the iPad. I'll just run through the whole thing. Maybe it's an hour long talk. And if it's an hour long, I will break it into chunks and then I'll do practice sessions starting from maybe like the second third or the third third. Oh, that makes sense. Otherwise, you'd have to practice. Otherwise, what happens, and I've had this happen, I'll get real good at the first third of the speech and then it starts to kind of go off the rails later on. And uh, it's a little more ad-libbed. So I will practice in thirds or I'll practice in quarters or whatever it is. And then I'll just do it again and again and again. First time, holding the iPad, looking down. Second time, maybe the iPad's in the corner and it's up so I can kind of walk over and look at it if I need to. Uh, Otherwise, I'm pacing around the hotel room. I'm pretending I'm looking at the crowd and I'm giving the speech. And then eventually I try to give it without the iPad open.
1: That makes sense to do it in like stages
0: like that. Yeah. That's, That's about it. Cool. So I know there's probably a lot more we could say on this topic. And I have also done two videos, one on how to be a better public speaker, which ironically the delivery in that video is quite a bit worse than my (laughs) delivery now, because that video is about two and a half years old, but it's not bad. Uh, and then there is one on how to design better presentations. So that's all about, you know, thinking about changing your audience. What do you want to include? What do you want to not include? Uh, And my parting thought, I don't know if you have anything else to add here, but my parting thought is if you're going to have slides, and we could probably do a whole episode on slide design, don't crowd your slides with information. And do not make your slides essentially like a mirrored version of your speech. Like if you imagine plugging in an external monitor to your MacBook Pro, you don't want to mirror the monitors. You want to extend the monitor to get more space. Yeah, And your slides are visual metaphors or jokes, or maybe you're listing out important information. So if you're gonna say something and you know people are gonna to wanna to write this down, cool, have a slide for that. But don't write a point for everything you're saying. Because number one, you become predictable. People see your slide and they're like, well, now I know what they're gonna talk about for the next 30 seconds I can tune out. And also, it's just boring. So what I do is I actually draw most of my slides or I just use pictures. I don't worry about really nicely designing the PowerPoint or using a cool template with a gradient and frilly bits on the borders. I just use pictures or I take pictures of whiteboard drawings that I've made. And then I just make a nice little presentation. Okay. Um, Yeah. I will see if I can get my presentation at VidCon filmed this year and then show it. Cool. When is that? That is June... Oh, that's not that far from now. Or 22nd, okay. I think. Yeah, it's coming up. So I've got a big old speech to prepare. Luckily, it is the same speech I gave last year, just a little bit tweaked. I'm doing a whole talk on how to um, speed up the YouTube video production process. Very ironic for me <laughs> <laughs> because I don't make videos that fast. But I like to say it this way I don't make videos that fast, but I make stages of videos very fast. And I think a lot of the people who make videos really fast end up, you know, they don't do as much in terms of production, so. Yeah, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, so I want to talk about things like, you know, how do you make templates that let you reuse things you've made in the past or how do you use keyboard shortcuts or macros or, you know, setting up different workflows that make your workflow more efficient. My problem is, I think, honestly, like perfectionism in the writing stage really draws that out. So I think the solution to that is just like hash it out with you we'll probably do a fake podcast on it. Yeah. And then turn that into a video. Ooh, do that's a fake Probably pod- what we
1: should do is a do fake a fake podcast. A fake mini podcast. We set a timer for like 20 minutes mm. and then just... That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah
1: there we go. I'm just going to write that down in this notebook.
0: And before people ask me to live stream it, I probably shouldn't do that because that's going to that's gonna put me in performance mode, which is not the goal here. No, no, it's for so, idea generation. Yeah, it's like a journal. Yeah. except for it's a speaking journal. All right. It's kind of like those arguments in the boardroom that Good to Great talked about. Yeah, you got yeah, to hash it out.
1: That's a really interesting
0: idea. Huh. Fake podcast. What if this has been a fake podcast the whole time? Maybe it was. And someone's been hacking my computer and posting all the files online. And if that was the case, why hadn't I done something about it sooner than 212 episodes in? I don't know. I'll get around to it. That's what I say every time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Uh, hopefully there were some good insights in here. I know there's a lot about developing and delivering speeches we didn't talk about. So wherever you listen, uh, if you're listening on a video platform like YouTube or Facebook Watch, put your questions in the comments wherever the comments box is, uh, or you can DM me on Instagram. I'm Tom Frankly on Instagram. Uh, Tom Frankly on Twitter as well. Or yo, Martholomew on Instagram. Yo, Martholomew. Or Twitter. I think you're more of an Instagram guy now. I really don't think you use your Twitter that much at all.
1: I use Twitter to answer things. Okay, yeah. If you tweet me, I will probably respond eventually. I do think that there are currently messages on both that I have not responded to. So sorry about that. But it happens eventually, probably.
0: Well, I've also learned you can't say I respond to every message. Yeah, I definitely don't respond to every message. Some messages are not worthy of responding to. Sometimes I respond. yeah. And I'm not trying to say, like, everyone's messages are unworthy. <laughs> you are unworthy. Unworthy. No, but, um, for I'm example, the most famous Thomases. for example, my friend Matt did a live stream on YouTube today, and it was a and a live stream, and I, I got in there, there weren't a whole lot of viewers, so he was answering every question, and then a troll came in and started asking really dumb and personal and inappropriate questions, and it just devolved from there. The person, oh. like, logged in on 50 different accounts and just hijacked it. And uh, it, was, it was very bad. That person doesn't feel bad about themselves. Oh, so no. we answer the good questions um, or we answer them in the form of new podcast episodes. Yeah. So to get back to the original point, uh, wherever you want to ask us questions, if you have questions about speeches that we didn't cover here, let us know. They could be a follow-up episode or they could at least make a question on a five questions episode. Uh, otherwise... You can subscribe to this podcast if you haven't on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Spotify, Facebook, watch, I don't know, Smoke Signals. I don't know video I don't formats. Can, I don't watch videos. You what, know? Did I, what did I not mention? Uh, YouTube. Yeah, YouTube's a thing. What's a YouTube? Well, it's a tube with you in it. Whoa. Series of tubes
1: is the internet, so that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It's just whichever one of those tubes that you're in. Everything makes the sense the YouTube. Now um, and the way you can find out how to subscribe to all those things. If say you're on YouTube and you want to grab it on the go and listen to it on Spotify, collegeinfogeek.com. Actually, no, it's not that it's just CIG, podcast.com. That That's easier. Yep. CIG podcast.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode with links to anything we may have mentioned at CIG podcast.com slash two twelve. So thank you so much for listening. Last but not least, collegeinfogeek.com resources is where you can find our favorite books that we recommend, our uh, dorm packing guide for college and all of our favorite gear apps, books, all that kind of stuff on our main resources page. So check those things out and we will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.